לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Parshas Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malman in Highland Park, New Jersey. Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation. I'm Jim and joining me with good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, Anjay Chesed, New York City. Rabbi Barry Chesler coming to us live from Ocean City, Maryland, but normally from Solomon Schechter Day School of Long Island. It's great to see you. We haven't seen each other for a couple of weeks because uh, we recorded Pinchas uh, a week earlier. Uh, but it's great to to, to be to, back together and uh, thinking about the future. You know, uh, we are planning to be at Machan Arama and the Berkshires where we are broadcast on Korama 102.3 FM. And we want to thank Mitch Mernick for dutifully producing us and uploading us and putting us on the website. And we hope to be there live, live next week on Clergy Day or Educator Day, or whatever day it's called. And, Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday. <laughs> we hope that really? we'll have a live audience. You think that we, we will have, um, we'll be able to do this with a live audience. That That's that's just so amazing. Um, and uh, let's, we'll, let's be honest, even if, even if we don't have a live audience, the fact that the three of us can get together and do it in person, is going to be pretty sweet. That's amazing. We're, we're 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 looking forward to that. We'll have to get a real camera here, in one one screen. At any rate, bleed editor, bleed editor, without without promising, which is a good segue to uh, our parshot parshiot matod mase double parsha with the first of the two matod. At the beginning of this parsha, it deals with the neder, and I use the word bleed editor. Bleed means you know we we commit ourselves, and it's a nice Jewish way of saying. But I really don't want to commit myself fully with a with a, a executable oath here, a, a, a vow, because if I do so and I don't fulfill it, then I might receive a penalty for that. And perhaps the word blineder, the phrase blineder, which is uh, you know seeped into the way Jews talk, takes into account the very special nature of language that that words. When when we say things, um, we mean things, and and words within biblical culture and maybe within you know pre modern culture, words had a lot of meaning to it. Words had a lot of weight. Barry. So in a sense, the vow is a reminder that even with speech, which we seem to think that we can repeat or refine. To our heart's content, you don't get do-overs. When you say something, you obligate yourself to what you say. And in our parsha, of course, there are two of the exceptions are, are for a woman in her father's domain or in her husband's domain, the father or husband can overrule the vow, which raises some interesting issues about how women are regarded because 
if you can't take a person at their word, their value is diminished. Well, it, it really is a very interesting passage because the this, obviously what is being described, a, a minor female in her father's house or a married woman, um, the the they are what is being described is clearly a hierarchical stratified social system where she she does have a, a rather limited um, uh, authority over her own words, but not totally limited because the father and the husband in those cases each must on the day that they hear of the vow revoke it if they want to revoke it, but then they lose their ability. So they have like a one day reaffirmation that they're the boss and that she kind of works for them or she's under their control. And so, so yeah, she's not what we would consider fully autonomous, but she's not, you know, a tool of, of his desire either, right? He he has a he has some authority over her, but the authority is limited. Right. Well, the other piece that may be part of it is that these particular vows that the Torah is talking about may be vows that commit a monetary have a monetary component to them, so that when the woman makes the vow. She's actually obligating the the resources of either her father or her husband, and they have to pay up. So, so that would... on on the note, you know, the the Bible does have some accounts of vows. Uh, Jacob makes a vow when he leaves Canaan and and goes to, to sojourn with uh, his. Well, that uh, was a business deal. It was a by Yidor Neder Ladonai. He makes a vow to God and says, "You know, if 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 I go and I'm able to come back, I'll give you a tenth of whatever I I get here." And that that's a promise. And then there's Yiftach, you know, great 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 judge, uh, also known as Jephthah, Yiftach, who says, "I'm going to sacrifice the first thing that comes out uh, after returning victorious from a battle." And um, and lo and behold, it's it's his daughter. And he doesn't revoke his vow. Uh, it's a very peculiar episode in the book of Judges. Um, and, and he is, uh, I guess, you know, certainly by the tradition uh, condemned for that. But I think there's a, there's a slight condemnation in the text itself against Yiftach. I mean, this is, this is weird. This is strange. This is, you know, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is trouble. Strange. You know, first of all, I wanted to say that uh, I would pick up on, uh, you know, what you were saying about the, you know, the just huge importance of speech. Speech creates a reality. And even today, we have different ways in which speech creates a reality. You know, you take an oath of office, you take an oath and you go to the court. Um, you know, I can lie without consequence, but if I take an oath in court, and then it's perjury, right? And you, you say certain things. In under a coupon until you until you do that you're not married but then you say them and you're married and so speech speech does create a reality there's a wonderful um, I we got we got really really lucky here at Anshe Hesed and the uh, creator Asaf Beiser the creator co-creator of the Yehudim Baim comedy sketch show in Israel spoke at the synagogue here the other night oh and wow it, it was great it was so yeah. good but he, but they, the last episode of the previous season is a lot of, lot of shows. There's a sketch show that mines biblical stories and episodes in Jewish history, and a lot of them have been about Moshe. And so the last episode, the last one was, you know, Moshe is finally retiring, and Joshua's yeah. scene is pushing him out the door. It's quite, quite funny. Um, 
And so they're, they're going to be done with Moshe because they concluded the season with him. But he's, he's sort of paraphrasing his way through the Aserah that he brought, the Ten Commandments. Yeah. And the, I want to make sure you know the Ten Commandments. The people don't know any of the Ten Commandments. Sure. Like, but don't, don't eat wool with the mother's milk or something like that. And they, they screw them all <laughs> up. And so he, he repeats them, but he repeats them in a colloquial and very sweet language. And one of them about don't take God's name in vain. Says, don't take, don't say God's name stam, just like, you know, pointlessly. In fact, don't say anything stam. If you want your words to matter, choose them carefully and really mean them. Yeah, and I thought that was just so beautiful. That was just great. Don't say anything stam. You're creating a reality when you make these vows. Are they going to which, which is really interesting, is that. One of the things that the rabbis look, you know, they really care about this is the Chachamim sages are empowered to dissolve a vow if the person didn't know what they were getting into, which does not exist in the Torah. And in fact, in the Mishnah itself, it says that this is, that this is Harim Tzulim Besara. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, you're mountains hanging by a hair or it flowed in the air with no basis, but yeah. yet the rabbis thought that they could. That they, they they basically invented it. They invented the fact that you could annul a vow and that you could, or you you can you can neutralize it, basically annul. Right, and but the the real punch to that is that they still take yiftach to task for not getting the vow annulled, even though the the annulment didn't become possible for you know. And the the midrash responds. The Midrash I saw in this also takes Pinchas to task because uh, Pinchas he should, have he should have been he should have you know uh, overruled him and didn't and so therefore Pinchas. Uh, but we, we we said enough about Pinchas uh, last time. No, okay. actually, I, a nice little story. I was in my shul and one of uh, learning parsha not parsha Shavuot, but some Torah with someone who comes in frequently and he happens to listen to the show. Wow. And he said, you know, in my yeshiva, they didn't let us ask questions like that about Pinchas. Well, you know, there's 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 value to us in that we there's no there are no questions that are out of bounds here, except I don't know. We don't we don't t- discuss Baal worship in depth here. <laughs> okay. We don't discuss it in depth. Just you know, like <laughs> we, we skim well, the we get into this. Okay. And I think we're going to skip over the massacre of the Midianites, right? Yeah, <laughs> I don't. That's I, hard. That's that's a, that's in those Pimpsus category questions. It's a difficult passage, and and you know, not that we want to skip over difficult passages, but eh. <laughs> well, let, let's let's go to Masse, okay? And and um, at the beginning of Masse, you know, we all noticed that that Masse, I, you know, in the past we've talked about it in in rhapsodic terms. And that that the list of all the places that uh, Israel stays reads almost like a song, uh, but there's a little piece of information that's at the beginning of chapter 33. Uh, it says, "I'm going to pick it up from 333." By they went from Ramses on the first of the month of the fifteenth day in the first month on the day after the Passover. The children of Israel went out with a high hand before the eyes of all Egypt. Then verse four, Umitzraim. And the Egyptians were burying those whom God had struck among them, every firstborn, and God had made judgments on their gods, 
That little note, it's almost like a footnote. The Egyptians were buried. That's not in the text. I don't recall that from, from Shemot. I don't recall that that is a specific thing. And so, you know, here, do your Rashi on this for, for me. Brad, you want so to... I think that what we have here is a kind of biblical Midrash. Yeah. The verse before ends, Lene called Mitzrayim, in the presence of all the Egyptians. And what this verse reminds us is that the Israelites saw the Egyptians on their way out, but the Egyptians didn't see them because they were busy doing something else. And it provides a fascinating coda to the whole enslavement piece because while the Israelites are slaves, the Egyptians don't see them as people. And when they leave, they don't even see them at all. The Israelites don't see the Egyptians. No, the Egyptians the don't, don't see them at all. The Israelites see the Egyptians the Egypt- as they're leaving. Okay, the Israelites. But the Egyptians see- don't see them because they're busy mourning their dead. So, but you said so. Who doesn't see whom as people? The Egyptians. When I, my belief, a uh, deeply seated belief, is that people who own slaves do not, no matter what they protest, see the slaves as people in any meaningful way. Interesting. They're just a lower status. Other, you don't enslave people the same status of, as you, unless you're even more evil than I can imagine. Uh, Jeremy, you want to you want to pick up on 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 the you know just give me your you know Barry said this and you say this on <laughs> on Mikabrin. Is there? So oh, I I feel like this, this verse I find very kind of uh, gripping because first of all, just in the art of the narrative, yeah, it's it it doesn't say you know and they left on the next day after God smote the it could have said like after and and so it was after God smote the Egyptians that the Israelites left. But it didn't tell it that way. It told it with a very vivid image. Like Israel is marching out into freedom, and Egypt is like hunched over in a graveyard digging, right? Um, so I thought that was just like on a narrative level, a, a spectacular choice of you know, facts, kind of detail. All good writing is always good in the details. And so that's that's an example here. Um, and I, and I, I kind of want to say, what I want to be the case, which I don't really think is the case. I mean, clearly there is a contrast being drawn in this, drawn in this, in this um, uh, verse between the celebrating Israelites and the mourning Egyptians. I kind of want it to be um, generous and and like I have a moment of uh, empathy for the Egyptians burying their children. I don't really think it is, though. I think it's probably a little bit more like. Come see the victorious and the vanquished. So, so um, there's a there's a word there's a word in the Psalms. Bekosharot. God takes out the uh, takes out the suffering. Bekosharot. And the midrash refers to this verse. It's bacho. The Egyptians were crying. Visharot. The Israelites are singing. And so you could imagine the sound of you know the, the singing of the Israelites singing uh, like in Prince of Egypt. Uh, and the Egyptians mourning their dead, uh, it's kind of heartbreaking. Well, I, uh, you're saying that this is a triumphalist uh, reading, and 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 maybe I'll I'll put in a voice for maybe this is an empathic reading. Maybe, I would like that to be the case. Please, so, please, why? Why? Please. Can, I, oh, so I want to say, uh, let's go there. Let's let's say that this is an a, a, 
this is a verse that that seems almost disruptive to the flow of the different verses here um and if it's part of the flow great if it's if it's an editor saying wait a minute all of this joy in your departure all of this joy and freedom is is you know entailed catastrophe for the egyptians and the humanity of israel at this point is mindful that is to say that the people are attentive to the the tragic outcome for the egyptians and that and that not only is you know is there you know was it cat- catastrophic for them but it's they're all every every firstborn they're bearing children um and you know i don't i don't know how you read that without without feeling a sense of wow this is this is pretty so you know in light of the passage that we passed over about the midianites it also seems to be a comment on them as well because we imagine after the battle with the massacre of the midianites that they're busy burying their dead while the Israelites are exalting and leaving, right? They're not staying at the battle scene. And so it sort of works for both stories. Right. So so it, it just tells us that, you know, I, I love the fact that, that the Torah has trope, you know, and that you can sing the Torah and you could, you could, you even with the melody that you use or the pauses that you use or the the tone of voice that you use it you can have different melodies even with the same trope you know um and and this verse can lead itself can be interpreted either tri- triumphantly or um empathically well so Elliot, the note of mikabrim is a rivia which goes down it's a descending uh-huh. note Gabriel. so we can imagine the egyptians descending in their grief as well sure sure you know i mean but we, we don't go as far as to say you have to chant this in echa or anything like that i mean you know it look for the most part it's it's passed over in in our uh reading um uh and but but it's saying you know your journeys your journeys involves uh catharsis and tremendous disruption and out of the death uh comes uh your life basically um and so we go on we go on to the different um places that they stay and we've talked about that in the past and and i i truly love the interpretation that that there's some music here in fact we we do chant this with um a different melody in in, in certain traditions um because it it is a song and these this is the song line of the of the of the of the wandering let let's go a little further i want to i want to talk about the um the cities of refuge okay and that's in chapter 35 chapter 35 uh we get into verse 9 god speaks to moses saying speak to the children of israel and you shall say to them, when you cross the Jordan to the land of Canaan, you shall establish cities. They shall be cities of refuge for you. In the Hebrew, it's Vikritem Lachem Arim Aremiklat Lachem. They will be cities of refuge. Venas Shama Roteach Maken Nefesh Bishkaga. So the which means a, a manslayer. I'm sorry. The uh, um, Sorry, a manslayer who strikes a life by mistake 
shall flee there. A tragic situation where, you know, we can imagine all sorts of different scenarios. The We have, you know, the scenario of, you know, someone who is is um, chopping wood and the, the head of the axe flies off the head of the axe. It's, it's, these are situations where anticipating that accidental manslaughter will happen. Um, and, you know, many lives in our communities are touched by these kinds of things or accidental death or accidental homicides through uh, vehicle accidents or, or other kinds of mishaps, engineering mishaps where buildings collapse or you name it, dozens and dozens of scenarios. And, um, you know, these situations are impossible. They're impossible to, to manage. They're impossible. They're impossible for the family of the victim, certainly. And to a certain extent, they're impossible for the families and the individuals who, uh, through either accident or negligence, commit these terrible acts. Then nobody's life can be the same. Um, and so in, in, in the context of ancient culture, the, the, the family of the victim wants to avenge the death, but the, the society provides a refuge for them. And um, there's something very captivating about, about the idea that you have some place to run, you have a place to go to. I don't know if, you know, if, how you want to comment on this or, or think about this. Is a, uh, it's, I, I think that, as, as you said, the, uh, in, the, in the Asian context, like any decent family member would, would avenge their, their family member's death by killing somebody else. Like any, any decent person would be a Goel Hadam, be a blood avenger. And the Torah, you know, sometimes the Torah is, you know, when it legislates, sometimes it's describing an ideal world, and sometimes it seems to be describing a reform in which people's, you know, worst instincts get out of hand and they have to restrain them. So the Goel Hadam, like, that was just a feature of the ancient world, and the, what they seem to be saying now is here, there's like a couple of functions that the Yermi cloud has. First of all, the, the person flees there. Um, the first thing they do is they take him there to go to jail, to await trial, and that's jail is like, it's not pleasant to be uh, the, the, the verb that the rabbis use for what, what happens when you go to the, the city of refuge is that you are exiled. So it's presumably not that pleasant to go there, but it's pretty good because it'll prevent the Goel Hadam from getting you in the meantime. So then they bring him back for the trial and then either A, execute him because he's guilty actually of murder, or B, send him back to the Irmiklat, the, 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 the uh, city of refuge, because he's it was really only manslaughter, it was an actual accident. Or C, they might determine that it was a total act of God that nobody could have ever foreseen. Like, there's a, some people don't get to go to the Irmi clot because they're actually guilty of murder. Some people don't need to go to the Irmi clot because, you know, nobody in a million years could be held responsible for this freak accident that happened. But the people who go have have stood trial and found to be at least a little bit criminally negligent. It, it's, it's such an interesting way of, of, of navigating through what, what is a chaotic situation. You know, there's, 
there's no way of explaining accidents except you know through the laws of physics i guess i mean you can say yeah gravity is is a, a feature of of our existence and and things will fall on you and and if you do not build a building properly or if you do not fasten your axe head you know the the centripetal force of the axe will 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 knock off the thing and 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 if you're in the way of it you could get killed i mean th- those are not comforting things. This is why. This is why. I mean, among the interesting things about this, as you pointed out, um, you know, there was just a feature of the world that, that there was bloody vengeance. But the 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 army clock comes as a um, reform to restrain the unlimited use of the goel hadam, but it doesn't eradicate the goel hadam because if the manslayer is foolish enough to leave the city of refuge, then we're back in free zone right. for the blood avenger to kill him. So I I, I feel like we're we're watching the Torah in, in this passage in number thirty five. I feel like we're watching the Torah um, uh, 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 wrestle with the morality of the prevailing ethos of its time. Like ah, oh, go Hadam. This is what we do. This is how we handle violence. Yeah, but it's it's got to be limited. We have to we have to uh, uh, um, uh, dial it back a little bit. Sure. The hovering it, but it also it also I mean it, it is the restriction on the Goel Hadam. It limits his field of action, so to speak. But it also seriously circumscribes the life of the Horeg Bishkaga, the unintentional murderer, because this person is displaced because just like with the vows words have consequences our actions have consequences and i think it's arguable whether the ancient world really knew of an accident the way that we know of one where no one is actually held responsible because the the import of the law seems to be that the person is negligent not totally not responsible in other words in our world if you're negligent that has liability. If it's actually an accident, there is no liability. And it's hard to imagine the ancient world perceiving a situation where there was no liability. But I want to add one other thing, because the way the chapter is constructed, we think about the Goel Adam, we think about the Horeg Bishkaga, but the whole justification for this right concerns the land. That we have this ritual so that the land not be polluted because all all blood must be avenged. And if the blood is not avenged, the land will be lost. And yeah. so this is a purification ritual of sorts. And what it teaches ultimately, I think, is that the responsibility of all of our actions is collective. It's not just individual. That the whole society has a stake and saying that justice takes place in the correct form. I, th- I think there's another valence here, which is that that there is a situation in in both ancient culture and to a certain extent to you know to this day of of sanctuary or that the sacred area is a place of refuge. And it can become a place of refuge even for undesirables, for criminals. People will seek asylum 
in a church or or even a synagogue, people will seek, you know, certainly in antiquity, they sought asylum in, in a, a sacred area, maybe as a way of kind of delaying their punishment, but they would they would have that ability by to 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 kind of profess uh, immunity uh, when they were located in the sacred precincts. We have a we have a biblical story about this with with Yoav, Yoav, who was basically the the henchman for for David, uh, a man with with no shortage of blood on his hands. And and when it came time, uh, Solomon uh, took the throne. Uh, basically, it was uh, we, we got to deal with all David's unfinished business, and and uh, Yoav, who knew that he was um, he had some blood on his hand, ran and and held on to the horns of the altar in order to uh, have asylum, basically. Uh, and and at that point, uh, uh, they say no, uh, that's not going to happen. And uh, they they basically kill him there. They they execute him there. Well, but the way the story goes, and there's an important point here, is that he's told to come out of the he's t- altar, and he says, "I'd rather die here." And well, it could be over my dead body, basically, or <laughs> or yes. But in other words, so I think there's still an element of purification at work because just- even Yoav, who you know is the conciliary of King David has a great deal of blood. And the other thing I would like to add here is that the stories that we have in the beginning of Kings, where Solomon is going to um, avenge his father, so to speak, also teaches us an important lesson on the meaning of words. Because the reason why David could not avenge these people is he made certain promises to them. Interesting. That he would not kill them while he was alive. I want to make two two observations that that I, I'll put out there for your debate, which is, you know, it's very interesting that this is either the last or close to the last thing that Moses legislates, uh, because we are ending the book of Bamidbar, and of course, when, once we get next week to the book of Varim, it's Moses's valedictories, and and while there are lots and lots of commandments in the in in the book of uh, uh, Dvarim, you know, this is really the end of the. The legislation in the desert. Okay, very interesting that Moses would be interested uh, on the subject of manslaughter um, and a refuge when uh, one could argue that Moses committed that act himself at the very beginning of his identity formation. That when he goes out among his people, among his brethren, he sees the Egyptian smiting. Uh, the Israelite, and he looks this way and that way, and he smites the Egyptian. I would, you know, propose that he doesn't commit uh, an act of premeditated murder. He just wants to hit him, and uh, the guy died, basically, and he buries him. (laughs) Right, and so the Goel Hadam there, in the accidental manslaughter, is none other than Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the one that wants to redeem the blood of of the slain Egyptian, and therefore, Moses uh, has to run away, and he 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 runs not to a city of refuge. He runs to a country of refuge, where he becomes a shepherd. He doesn't live in a city, so that's number one. Number two item is that this also connects back to the beginning of the Torah, where we have the first uh, uh, story of fratricide, which arguably is also 
uh, an act of manslaughter. It doesn't say that Cain wanted to kill Abel. You know, when we put Cain on trial at camp, um, you know, the kids always find Cain not guilty of, of first-degree murder, right? It's maybe manslaughter. And Cain has the same penalty. He gets, he he becomes a wanderer. Navanad, he has to be a vagrant wanderer in the land, but it's too great for him. So God places a sign on him, and then he lives in Eretz Nod and builds a city. So one could argue that the first city ever constructed was in fact a city of refuge. So I put those two things out and say that there's there are arcs here in the Torah where these you know these stories connect back to earlier stories. So Elliot, it's a fascinating interpretation. But if it, the city of Node is indeed a city of refuge, who is the Goel Adam? Everybody. Everybody. He's afraid that that so the, then it's not fratricide unless so you're saying that everyone is Hevel's brother? Yes, because the, the new generations that the new people that will come into existence are all going to be related to Hevel and want to avenge the death of Hevel. Well, this 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 part now makes it really deep. Like, okay, obviously neither Kain nor Moshe is really an act they might not be first degree murder people, but they're they're not accidental ones either because the the point of the, the Goel Hadam, the uh Mishkaga, um is that he really didn't intend to do this and it was an accident, whereas those other two are much more like intentional crime. But what you say now is really just on a literary and spiritual level and poetic level, fabulous because it just it it, it like you said, it's an arc or a thread that takes these disparate episodes from the very, very, very beginning of the Torah, the very, very beginning of, of the book of Exodus, and now they just call them to mind in our ears again. Um, and so if, if if we want to make it like poetic, when God says to, to Cain, you know, where's your brother? And Cain says, you know, am I my brother's keeper? And so your answer is, on a, on a deep spiritual, psychological level, you know, you want it darker? All of us have to... All of us have some like, almost original obligation to avenge this first pointless murder in the world. Yes, uh, and and yet there is this amazing mercy that all the way back the divine has uh, uh, you know appointed some rescue for somebody who might otherwise just give up on their life. So so well, interestingly that he 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 is he's in perpetual exile. But but once he says to God, Gadolavani min sod, my my punishment is too great for me to bear, he gets to settle. He gets to settle. He, he, he's no longer wandering. He is nidui, he lives, he is cast out, which is really the, you know, and here back to our accidental manslaughter in, in our parsha, and of course in experience, that person is a kind of uh, outcast. Uh, how could that person not be? I mean, a person who commits, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, terrible event. Um, I mean, how do you, you, you how do you live with yourself after? It, it's impossible. So I, I, just, I just want to add something here that. So the the question that Cain asked, "Am I my brother's keeper?" But you're suggesting is the answer properly understood is everyone is your brother. Yeah, and you are his keeper. Yeah, but. Cain in the city remains in exile because we forget sometimes that he started off as a farmer. Yeah. And 
properly speaking, the city does not have farming the way that uh, the farmer has farming. Indeed, indeed. Wow. And so he is still displaced. And for Adam, the land was going to bring forth uh, thorns and thistles. But for Cain, it will no longer bring forth anything. Hence, right. he's in the city, exiled to a city where he cannot sustain himself. And he's right. dependent on others. Exactly, exactly. Well, well, we've, we've reached our end of our time. Can I just throw one more thing in there real quick, which is that um, in, in, the same, in the same spot here in the Torah, 35, chapter numbers 35, you know, as Barry said, there's an idea that, that unjustly spilled blood pollutes the land. And that it has to be cleansed, and it, it really seems like it has to be cleansed with the execution of the murderer, um, unless it's an, it determined to be an accident, in which case that blood did not really, you know, pollute the land. It was just an accident. And the Torah in chapter 35, verses 31 and 32, says something that's really, I think, important. Um, do not accept the ransom for the life of a murderer who has been judged, you know, sentenced to, to death for capital for capital punishment. He must be put to death. We have lots of good reasons, and I, I think we should oppose the American death penalty. I think it's, it's a terrible policy. Very often, you know, racially, socially uh, imposed in prejudicial ways. Um, but the Torah is saying something that we, I think we should hang on to, which is that there is no monetary fine, there's no monetary value that you can put on a life. Right. If you if you have killed somebody, you have taken something of infinite value, and you cannot say, you know, you cannot say, okay, so you'll you'll get out of the death penalty if you pay a million dollars or ten million dollars or whatever it is. We do in the United States. We do have obviously civil damages for all kinds of things that people people do, um, you know, and people can, can in fact, be imposed fines to, to pay the victims for pain and suffering, et cetera. But the deep insight is, as Maimonides says, you know, with respect to that law about not taking, not taking a ransom to let somebody off the death penalty is, you know, even if the victim's family wants to, that life does not belong to the family. Uh, it belongs to God. And I think that's pretty deep. So, the insistence on the death penalty for homicide, even though it's not what I would have for American society now, is is gesturing towards the infinite value of human life, and I think that's a super important thing that emerges from the Torah. You know, that's a, that's another bow, another another kind of arc in the Torah, which is the the Torah starts really with understanding the Tzelem Elohim, the infinite value of life, and 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 we we're getting that. Uh, uh, echo here and of course many echoes of lots of things thank you everyone for listening thank you especially Camp Rama for broadcasting and all the people that are listening there we hope to see you next week in the meantime we wish everyone a Shabbat Shalom thank you for listening thank you for watching and we'll see you next week on the next edition Shabbat Shalom
לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה 102.3 מה אישים? קיץ באוויר. רדיו כל רמה 102.3 FM